We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. There was love in the air in New Brunswick, New Jersey on the morning of September 16th, 1922. Or at the very least, lust. It all started with a young couple out for a walk that Saturday morning in the city center. Although this couple seemed happy and very much focused on one another that morning, there were also some notable issues with their relationship. For starters, the girl was only 15 years old while the young man was 23. She was Pearl Balmer, a pretty petite blonde with sparkling brown eyes and an infectious smile. The man was Ray Schneider, and he was looking slim and dapper in a button-down and tie. He was also, at that point in time, still legally married. We don't know exactly what was on Ray's mind that morning, although we can make a few guesses based on where he led Pearl. He and Pearl walked hand-in-hand away from the downtown area. They headed west past the city's many shops and restaurants. They passed the local musical reviews and movie houses, past the headquarters of Johnson & Johnson, as well as Rutgers University. They headed away from all the hustle and bustle of the city to a more rural, secluded part of town. A place where a young couple could do the sort of things that young couples did when they were alone together. This was a part of town that was largely still dirt roads and empty fields. There was a farm nearby with an empty barn and a two-story house that most people believed hadn't been lived in for a long time. Pearl and Ray crossed a narrow brook and strolled down a narrow dirt road named DeRussi's Lane, although most people in town just knew it as the local lover's lane. From there, the couple strolled deeper into the secluded area, walking along a dirt trail lined with goldenrods. Soon, they made their way past the tall grass to a clearing. And it was here where Pearl saw something that caught her eye. There's a man and woman over there, she told Ray. Ray turned his attention to where Pearl was pointing. There were two people lying on their backs side by side underneath a crab apple tree. Neither one of them moved. Ray assumed they were sleeping. He told Pearl not to make any noise. They snuck past the two strangers and made their way to another secluded spot a short distance away. I'll leave it up to your imagination what the young couple did once they were finally alone. But a short while later, the two of them returned from their time alone and began heading back the way they came from. That was when Pearl noticed that the two people they'd spotted earlier were still there. And they still weren't moving. This gave Pearl an uneasy feeling. She told Ray to go check on them. Ray crept closer to the two people lying on their backs still not wanting to disturb them if they really were asleep. But when Ray was close enough to see them clearly, he realized that these two would never be getting up again. They were covered in blood and very obviously dead. One thing Ray knew for certain is that this put him in a difficult spot. He was still a married man after all, and Pearl was only 15. He told Pearl that they needed to get their stories straight before they phoned the police. Ray knew of a house nearby where he thought they might be able to use the phone. He knew it would look bad for him if he had to admit that he'd taken his underage girlfriend into the woods for a little alone time. 
He told Pearl that if anyone asks, they should say they were out hunting for mushrooms when they found the bodies. They hurried back to the main road and rang the bell of the first house they came to. They told the woman who answered the door that there was an emergency and they needed to phone the police. But when Ray finally got on the telephone and tried to speak, he found he was too nervous and couldn't form the words. The young woman who owned the house took the receiver from his hand and did the talking for him. Half an hour later, patrolman Edward Garrigan and James Curran arrived on the scene. Back then, patrol officers didn't always have cars, so they'd had to hitch a ride with a local motorist. They picked up Ray and the three of them headed down the lane to where Ray said he'd found the bodies. Ray stood back nervously as officers Curran and Garrigan headed toward the crab apple tree where the two bodies lay. The man and woman had been carefully laid out on their backs about a foot apart and their bodies appeared to be posed. Their feet were pointed toward the tree trunk. The man's outstretched arm lay underneath the woman's head. Her left hand was resting on top of the man's right thigh. Her legs were crossed at the ankles, right over left. She was wearing a blue and red polka dot dress. Nearby lay a blue velvet hat. Her coarse black stockings were rolled down below the knee, partially covering her worn brown Oxford loafers. She also had a blood-stained brown silk scarf around her neck. There was a visible bullet wound in the middle of her forehead just below her hairline. She'd also been shot below her right eye, and another bullet entered her skull just over her right ear. There was a deep knife wound in her neck. Someone had savagely slashed her throat from ear to ear almost to the point of decapitation. It wouldn't be until four years later when a second autopsy also revealed that in addition, the killer had cut out her tongue and larynx as well. The man wore a dark gray suit with a white button-up shirt and a long white necktie. The tie was secured with a gold clasp that matched the gold ring on his little finger. His face was covered by a black Panama hat, although the officers could still see that he wore glasses. He too had a gaping bullet wound in his skull, just above his right ear. There were several pieces of handwritten torn paper scattered around the body, as well as two handkerchiefs and a dark leather billfold, which upon inspection revealed a driver's license. Officer Garrigan observed that although the grass around the two corpses appeared trampled, there didn't appear to be any signs of a struggle. He also noticed a small white card leaning against the heel of the man's shoe. It was speckled with either fly droppings or blood and it appeared that it had been carefully placed there by the killer. One of the officers had to turn away and fight his gag reflex when he realized there were maggots swarming around the woman's throat. Although at first the two police officers made some cursory attempt to maintain the integrity of the crime scene, this didn't last long. By the end of the day, the scene would be decimated by reporters and ghoulish souvenir hunters. In fact, over time, the crabapple tree that loomed over the two bodies would have its bark stripped for souvenirs. Then later on, the entire tree would be uprooted and stolen as well. One of the two officers picked up the man's wallet and looked at the driver's license inside. This identified him as 41-year-old Edward Wheeler Hall, and he lived at 23 Nichols Avenue in New Brunswick. Shortly after, a reporter named Albert J. Cardinal from the New Brunswick Daily Home News arrived, and he asked Officer Kerrigan if he could pick up the card leaning against the man's foot. Shockingly, Officer Garrigan allowed him to do this. This was just one of many errors the police made in mishandling the evidence in the case. It turned out to be the calling card of Edward Hall, 
which also revealed that he was a reverend at the Episcopal Church of St. John the Evangelist. In time, the female victim would be revealed as 34-year-old Eleanor Mills, a choir singer from Reverend Hall's parish. Both Reverend Hall and Eleanor Mills were married, but not to each other. In the years that followed, their murders would reveal a sordid tale of infidelity, jealousy, and rage. It would also become known as one of the most twisted and shocking unsolved murders in history. I'm Nate Hale, the Encyclopedia Brown of the podcasting world, and this is The Conspirators. Throughout the Roaring Twenties, there were a few key events that marked the era forever in history, including Charles Lindbergh's transatlantic flight, the ratification of the 19th Amendment giving women the right to vote, and the Wall Street Crash of 1929. There were also a handful of true crime cases that shocked the world and became tabloid sensations on an unprecedented scale. Although this story is largely forgotten today, for a time the Hall Mills murder, as it was called, became the most famous and sensational murder trial of them all. That is, until it was eclipsed by the trial of Leopold and Loeb just two years later in 1924. On the day the bodies of Edward Wheeler Hall and Eleanor Mills were discovered, there was some question about jurisdictional issues among the police. The bodies lay just over the border in the town of Franklin, which was part of Somerset County, whereas New Brunswick was in Middlesex County. At around two o'clock, about three and a half hours after the bodies were discovered, a Somerset County undertaker arrived and began examining the bodies. By that point, the crime scene was already becoming hopelessly contaminated. A swarm of reporters and ghoulish souvenir hunters had trampled all over the field. The undertaker felt around in Hall's pocket and found 61 cents in change and two handkerchiefs. He eventually loaded the two bodies into a hearse. The estimated time of death was determined to be 36 hours earlier, which meant that either no one had noticed them for nearly a day and a half, or the bodies had been placed there at a later time after the murders occurred. If the Reverend and the choir singer had been shot and killed at the location they were discovered, then it would be unusual that they hadn't been discovered earlier. This was still a popular lover's lane and likely would have seen some visitors on a Friday night. Some investigators wondered if the bodies might have been discovered earlier only that the people who found them had failed to report the bodies. There was even some suggestion that someone could have looted the corpses for money and other valuables. A gold watch that Edward Wheeler was known to wear was not found with his remains. Although that didn't entirely make sense considering the robber left behind a valuable gold ring and gold tie clasp on Wheeler's body as well. At the morgue, when the undertaker removed the dead man's coat, a 32 caliber bullet fell to the floor. He also observed an unusual discoloration to the man's right hand. At this point in time, the woman's body had not yet been identified, although later on her name would be revealed as Mrs. Eleanor Mills. Whereas Reverend Hall had been shot once in the head, Eleanor Mills had been shot three times in the head and her throat had been deeply slashed from ear to ear. The cut was so deep that her jugular vein, windpipe, esophagus, and neck muscles were completely severed, and her backbone was visible. There was also a small wound on her upper lip and her arm showed signs of bruising. It wouldn't be until a second autopsy was performed four years later when the coroner finally noticed that someone had also removed the woman's tongue and larynx. The letters that had been torn up and scattered between the two bodies were written in pencil by Eleanor Mills. They were love letters 
full of over-the-top romantic sentiments. In the letters, Mills professed her undying love for the Reverend. She spoke of how lucky she was to be with a man as wonderful as he was. One letter proclaimed, Oh honey, I am fiery today, burning, flaming love. In another, Mrs. Mills lamented how lucky she was to be with a man as wonderful as Reverend Hall. Since if he wanted to, he could easily be with someone younger and prettier than she was. She wrote, I know there are girls with more shapely bodies, but I'm not caring what they have. I have the greatest part of all blessings, a noble man's deep, true, eternal love. And the pastor's replies were equally as over the top as well. In one of the other letters that were found ripped to pieces, he wrote, Darling Wonderheart, I just want to crush you for two hours. I want to see you Friday night alone by our road, where we can let out unrestrained that universe of joy and happiness that we call ours. He signed the letter DTL, which was short for Diener Truer Liebhaber, thy true lover in German. Mrs. Mills was simpler in her pet name for the Reverend. She simply referred to him as Babykins. The affair between Reverend Hall and Mrs. Eleanor Mills had been widely rumored throughout the parish. It was believed to have been going on for about four years. James Mills was the husband of the slain choir singer. He was also the church sexton. He would later tell police that he had been completely oblivious to the affair. Reverend Edward Hall was born in Brooklyn and received his theology degree in Manhattan. He became the rector of the Church of St. John the Evangelist in 1909. The church marked the halfway point between the richest and poorest parts of town. Just up the hill from the church to the stately mansions where the wealthy elite lived. Some of these blue bloods were the heirs to the Johnson & Johnson medical equipment fortune. This included a wealthy heiress named Frances Noel Stevens. At 37, she was seven years older than Edward Hall when she married him in 1911. It's believed that her family's wealth was somewhere just shy of $2 million at the time they were married. This led to a great deal of speculation among the local residents, as well as a number of reporters, if the Reverend Hall might have been a gold digger. The poorer side of town lay in the other direction from the church. A lot of immigrants lived in this part of town, as well as many of the city's most impoverished residents. Among them were Eleanor Mills and her husband James. He was a former shoemaker turned church sexton. Eleanor had been singing soprano in the church choir since she was 14 years old. She married James when she was 15 and the two of them went on to have two children. Naturally, suspicion immediately fell on the two jilted spouses as the obvious suspects in the murder. The vicious nature of the murders as well as the torn up love letters found at the scene pointed toward jealousy being a likely motive. But both James Mills and Francis Hall were able to provide alibis for their whereabouts in the night of the murder. Although neither of their alibis proved to be exactly rock solid, Frances's alibi was provided by her maid. But later on, the maid's word would be challenged in court. When she was questioned by police, Mrs. Hall claimed to know nothing about the love affair her husband had been having with Eleanor Mills. But it seems clear that she actually knew a great deal. After all, the affair had been a widely known secret throughout the church. At the same time, there are some stories claiming there was no bad blood between Frances and Eleanor. It's even been reported that Frances Hall visited Eleanor Mills frequently while she was recovering from surgery, and even drove her home from the hospital. This would have occurred just eight months before the murder. Frances told police investigators that on Thursday afternoon, September 14th, she had been making preserves in the kitchen when she received a call from Eleanor asking to leave a message for Edward. She told Edward about the message at 6.30 that evening. Then two more calls came in at 7 and another around 20 to 8. 
Edward Hall told his wife he was going to check on Mrs. Mills' medical bill. Francis sat in the parlor playing solitaire for the next two hours. This was part of the alibi confirmed by the Hall's maid. Francis had a 50-year-old brother named Willie who lived with him. He came out of his bedroom around 9 to say goodnight. But by then, Francis was growing worried because Edward still had not come home. At 2.30 a.m., Francis got dressed and went to the church in search for missing husband accompanied by Willie. During the trip, they also walked past the mill's apartment, but the windows were dark. In the morning, Francis called the police and learned that no bodies matching Edwards had been found. She did not leave her name, which later on only further fueled suspicions about her. A reporter called Francis on Saturday, which is when she said she first learned that her husband was dead. She said she believed that robbery must have been the motive, since Edwards' gold watch was missing. She also said that he had been carrying about $50 in cash in his wallet when he left. James Mills claimed that on the evening of the murders, he had been sweeping up at St. John's until 5.45 p.m. He was running late for dinner and didn't get home till 6.15. After dinner, James went out and sat on the porch while his wife left the house to make a phone call to Reverend Hall. She came back briefly, then left again. He asked her where she kept going, and Eleanor told him defiantly why didn't he follow her and find out. He remained out on the porch until 9.45 reading the paper. By 10.30 he was growing increasingly worried, so he went to the church to look for his wife. He stopped for a soda along the way and finally got to the church at 11. Only neither Eleanor nor Reverend Hall were there. So he finally went home and went to bed, but he couldn't sleep. So he got back up at around 2 a.m. then went back to the church looking for Eleanor once more. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The following morning, James went to work without reporting his wife missing. He bumped into Mrs. Hall at around 8.30 a.m., and the two of them shared that their prospective spouses had gone out the night before and not returned. James half-jokingly said to Francis that he wondered if they'd run off together and eloped, to which Francis replied, God knows, I think they are dead and can't come home. Francis remained in contact with James throughout the day Friday, only neither of them heard anything about their missing spouses. One curious thing James discovered was an article laying out on the Reverend's desk about some prominent minister's views on divorce that had been clipped from the very newspaper he'd been reading the night before. He'd noticed the article was clipped out of the paper and he'd wondered why Eleanor might have done it. Although Eleanor and James remained the prime suspects in the case early on, there were some additional persons of interest who were closely looked at in the case. One of them was Eleanor's brother, Willie. He suffered from a mental disorder that prevented him from living on his own. So he lived with his sister and the Reverend, although most people thought Willie had a sunny disposition the majority of the time. He was also known to be impulsive and prone to anger and reckless behavior on occasion. Willie always wanted to be a fireman and spent a lot of his time hanging out at the fire station. He claimed to have gone to bed at 9 p.m. only to be woken up by Eleanor at around 2 a.m. to go looking for Edward. Later on, he became extremely talkative to detectives when he told them repeatedly how he owned a 32 caliber revolver and he kept insisting it had not been shot in many years. Keep in mind that by now, police had determined that Edward and Eleanor were killed with a 32 caliber revolver. 
Eleanor also had another brother named Henry Stevens. At 52, he was a retired exhibition marksman. He lived 50 miles away in La Valette, along the Jersey Shore. Henry claimed that he had been out fishing on the night of the murders and in general was not close with his sister. Although later during the trial, an eyewitness came forward claiming to have spotted Henry at the scene. The prosecutor also claimed it would have taken an expert marksman to place the three shots so closely together in Mrs. Mills' head. Someone else that came under suspicion was Ray Schneider, the man who, along with his 15-year-old girlfriend Pearl Balmer, discovered the bodies. He was implicated by Pearl's father, who never liked him and was jealous of his relationship with his daughter. Pearl's father was later arrested for incest. Pearl herself would later be arrested for what was referred to back then as incorrigibility. Some accounts claim that on the night of the murder, Pearl was with her father in the area of the Lover's Lane. When he was confronted by Schneider and two other young men, Clifford Hayes and Leon Kaufman, Pearl's father claimed that Clifford had a gun. One theory goes that Ray and his two companions had been out angrily looking for Pearl on the night of the murder. When they stumbled across Reverend Hall and Eleanor Mills and shot and killed them by mistake, Clifford Hayes was actually arrested and charged in the murder, although the public outcry was huge in his defense. A lot of local residents were outraged and convinced that the Somerset prosecutor was trying to railroad a poor young man just to make an arrest. Sure enough, Hayes was released for lack of evidence a short time later. This entire murder investigation was turning into a full-blown media circus. Each new development became front-page news. Benders actually set up shop around the murder site and began selling balloons and soft drinks to the many curious sightseers. Analysis of blood in the soil led investigators to conclude that Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills had been murdered at the location the bodies were found. Eventually, a state Supreme Court judge became frustrated with what he saw as a bungled investigation, so he turned the case over to the state attorney general's office. The attorney general decided to go over all the evidence collected from day one. That was when they came across the testimony of an eccentric local woman who came forward in October, claiming to have seen the murderers with her own eyes. The woman's name was Jane Gibson, and the Somerset prosecutor had dismissed her witness statement as unbelievable. And this was for good reason, because Gibson's story changed constantly. But the state attorney general took Gibson seriously. Gibson was a pig farmer, which led to the media calling her the pig woman, which I think we can all agree on is a pretty awful nickname. In the original statement she gave, Gibson claimed that on the night of September 14th at around 9 p.m., her dogs began barking furiously. She assumed someone was trying to steal her corn, so she got on her mule and headed out into the field to investigate. She was instead surprised to stumble across a group of four people standing out near the crabapple tree on DeRussi's Lane. As soon as she got close, she heard the sound of a gunshot. One of the four people fell to the ground just as a woman's voice could be heard crying out, Don't! Don't! More gunshots went off before Gibson saw one of the other figures collapse. Gibson fled terrified from the scene before anyone saw her. But she did claim that as she headed away, she heard one final scream from a female voice shouting the name, Henry. Police investigators disagreed with the story. They believed Edward had been executed while lying on the ground. Unlike the description given by Gibson, it didn't help that Gibson kept changing her story either. At first, she claimed to have only seen the shadowy figure silhouetted by moonlight. Later, she added seeing a parked car nearby. Then, she added that a passing car's headlights briefly illuminated the figures, giving them a good look at them. She said that the group consisted of two men and two women. She told the police that one of the women was wearing a long coat and one of the men had bushy hair and a mustache. 
She later added that she heard snippets of conversation regarding some notes before one of the women tried to flee. Gibson then said she saw one of the men grab the woman and drag her back to the location before she was shot and killed. During a third interview, Gibson added even more details to the story that she hadn't mentioned before. This time, she stated that she returned to the location at around 1 a.m. to retrieve an item she had dropped. But when she got to the clearing, she saw a woman kneeling alongside the two dead bodies and loudly weeping. Jane Gibson claimed that the woman was Frances Hall. But another witness cast some serious doubt on Jane Gibson's story. A neighbor named Mrs. Fraley lived in the house that stood close to the murder location along D. Roosie's Lane. In fact, the crabapple tree was visible from an upstairs window of her home. Although Mrs. Fraley told police that she heard and saw nothing on the night of the murders, nor did her lodger. Mrs. Fraley also told police that she had spoken to Jane Gibson on September 15th, and Gibson never mentioned anything unusual from the night before. Considering how gossipy she knew Gibson to be, Mrs. Fraley didn't think Gibson would have been able to keep her mouth shut if she really did witness a murder. Over time, Jane Gibson's story would change even further, and by then she was claiming she recognized the man with Francis Hall as Hall's cousin, Henry Carpenter. But Carpenter was able to provide an alibi with several witnesses who all attested to his whereabouts on the night of the murder. On November 20th, 1922, prosecutors took their evidence to a grand jury. Over the next eight days, 67 witnesses were called to testify. This included Mrs. Fraley, who had now changed her story and began claiming she heard gunshots at around 10 p.m. Prosecutors hoped that Jane Gibson's testimony would be enough for them to get an indictment against Francis Hall. But ultimately, the grand jury dismissed the case with no indictments being handed down. After that, the case went cold and over the next four years it became almost forgotten. However, things heated back up on July 3, 1926, when a piano tuner named Arthur Reel filed for divorce from his wife of 10 months. Inside the petition for divorce was the bombshell claim that Reel's wife, Louise Geist, took $5,000 from her employer to remain silent about the murders of Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills. Louise Geist was the former maid who had provided Edward Hall with her alibi on the night of the murders. Reel claimed that his wife had told him that Edward had confided in her his plan to elope with Eleanor Mills. But rather than keep it a secret, Louise Geist went straight to her employer, Francis Hall, with the news. Louise told Francis of the location where Edward planned on meeting with Eleanor. But on the night of the murder, Francis ordered her chauffeur, Peter Tumulty, to drive her and her brother Willie to the same location. Both Louise Geist and Peter Tumulty adamantly denied these allegations. Geist claimed that her husband had been threatening to implicate her in the murders if he didn't get back together with him. But whether it was true or not, the damage was done. The story got picked up by William Randolph Hearst's fledgling tabloid, The New York Daily Mirror, with the sensational headline, All Mills Murder Mystery Bared. Over the weeks that followed, the Daily Mirror featured several more over-the-top headlines about the murders, all of which caused both the tabloid circulation to jump and also caused a resurgence of citizens demanding action. This then made its way to the desk of the governor of New Jersey, A. Harry Moore. Governor Moore ordered prosecutors to re-examine the case. Just three weeks later, on July 28th, Frances Hall, her brothers Willie and Henry Stevens, along with her cousin Henry Carpenter, were all arrested for the murders of Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills. Shortly before the trial of the century, as it was being called, a new autopsy was ordered. This was when the shocking revelation was discovered that Eleanor's tongue and larynx had been cut out. Somehow, the earlier autopsy had missed this glaring detail. The trial of Frances Hall and her two brothers William and Henry Stevens began on November 3, 1926. Her cousin, Henry Carpenter, had successfully petitioned to be tried separately. 
although he was never actually tried at all. Once again, Jane Gibson became the star witness. By this point, Gibson was sick from cancer. They actually wheeled her into the courthouse in bed. But not everyone was sympathetic toward her. When she arrived at the courthouse, her own mother could be heard screaming from the gallery, calling her a liar. Once again, Gibson's story had been changed wildly. It was full of details that contradicted evidence gathered by the police and newspapers. This time around, Gibson claimed that she saw Francis as well as both her brothers Willie and Henry Stevens at the crime scene, leaving out her cousin Henry Carpenter this time. At the same time, Gibson still claimed there were only four people present in the field alongside DeRussi's Lane, which didn't make sense if both Edward and Eleanor were there as well, since that would make five people present. The defense did everything they could to discredit Jane Gibson as an unreliable witness willing to make up any story to make herself seem important. They even brought forth a neighbor of Gibson's named George Sipple, who claimed that Gibson had offered him money if he backed up her story. The prosecutors offered other evidence as well. They claimed that a partial fingerprint belonging to William Stevens was on the business card discovered leaning against Edward's foot. But the defense argued that this wasn't true. And even if it was, Willie lived with the Reverend and easily could have left the fingerprint on it in a bunch of other ways. Another witness who came forward was Ralph Gosling. He was a former boyfriend of Eleanor Mills who claimed that on the night of the murder, Henry Stevens had fired two warning shots at him, causing him to flee the scene. But this contradicted the testimony given by Jane Gibson, who now claimed that she heard only four gunshots, but that would have made six. Yet another witness who was put on the stand was Henry Dickman, a former state trooper who claimed he had been paid $2,500 by Henry Carpenter in order to drop any investigation into the halls or carpenters surrounding the murders. But the defense was able to easily destroy Dickman's credibility as a witness when it was revealed he had recently been released from Alcatraz, where he had served time as an army deserter. Frances Hall and her brothers Willie and Henry Stevens all took the witness stand and steadfastly denied any involvement in the murders. They all clung to their alibis on the night of the murders, and the prosecutors were unable to shake them. After a month-long trial on December 3, 1926, Francis, Willie, and Henry Stevens were all acquitted. In the eyes of the law, this meant they weren't guilty, although many investigators who have studied the case still believe Francis to be the most likely suspect in the murders. Whoever killed Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills seemed to reserve most of their anger for Eleanor. One curious detail that was later revealed is that sometime after the murders, Francis took a brown coat to a shop in order to be dyed black because of some unidentified stains. One problem with the story, though, is that it's believed that Francis' coat she would have been wearing on the night of the murders was gray, not brown. It's been over a century since the Hall-Mills murders occurred, and in that time several other suspects have been put forth by other investigators. Some people have suggested that Jane Gibson, the pig woman, may have accidentally shot and killed Edward and Eleanor, thinking they were out stealing her corn. But that doesn't explain why she would have cut Eleanor's throat and cut out her tongue, nor why she would have torn up all the love letters and scattered them at the scene. A famous attorney named William Kunstler wrote a book about the case in the early 1960s in which he speculated that Edward and Eleanor may have fallen victims to the Ku Klux Klan, who at the time were strongly against extramarital affairs. This seems like a big stretch, though, considering the KKK had never been known to kill anyone in New Jersey. Even Kunstler himself had to admit this was purely speculation, and he had no evidence to back this up. Other people have suggested that Ralph Gorslein, Eleanor's former lover, might have stalked and killed the couple out of jealousy. This theory isn't totally out of the question, but the police never found any evidence to support it either. 
1969, a 67-year-old Hungarian immigrant named Julius Boliag reignited interest in the case when he came forward with a story he had never told before. By this point, Boliag was very sick with a heart condition and not expected to live long. He claimed that when he was 20 years old, he had been friends with Willie Stevens. He said that just 48 hours after the murder, he was given $6,000 by Francis Hall and told to deliver it to a couple of local hoodlums. Boliag was only able to identify one of the two hoodlums with the name Freddy, but the other one he identified as Isidore or Ike Gutman, a man who later on would be charged with a number of violent crimes, including kidnapping and armed robbery. In 1934, Gutman was shot to death gangland style in a mafia hit by a known hitman named Richie the Boot Boyardo. If you research this case, one person who often seems to get a pass as a potential suspect in the murders is Eleanor's husband, James Mills. Which is strange when you think about it because he would have had just as much motive to murder the couple as did Francis Hall. And yet, although Mills was looked at as a suspect by police, he was never charged with the murders for lack of evidence. In truth, we'll likely never know who committed the Hall-Mills murders. Everyone involved is long dead, and there just doesn't seem like there will be any new evidence forthcoming. At the time, the case became such a media sensation that it went on to inspire numerous other writers. Damon Runyon was one of the reporters in the trial, as were H.L. Mencken, Billy Sunday, and the famed mystery novelist Mary Robert Reinhardt, who, fun fact, wrote about a character she called the Bat, who later went on to inspire the creation of Batman. James Thurber wrote an essay about Willie Stevens. Several mystery novels were written that were inspired by the case. There are even some claims that F. Scott Fitzgerald drew inspiration from the lurid details of the case when he wrote The Great Gatsby. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Hunter, Alex, Rebecca, and Lisa for signing up and helping support the show. You're all amazing. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I know all the shows ask you to do this, but it actually really helps spread the word and boost us in the podcasting charts. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us along on social media. We're currently on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and on top of that, I'm excited to announce that I just launched a brand new TikTok account. If you follow us on TikTok, I've started creating short-form videos that tie directly into the podcast. I encourage you to give us a follow and let me know what you think. I'll put a link to our new TikTok in the show notes. Besides that, you can also send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to drop us a line and let us know how we're doing. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.